Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. UN Week kicks off on a high note on Friday with the opening of a special summit on the Sustainable Development Goals. Pope Francis will be one of the first to address the summit on Friday morning. President Obama is helping to close the session on Sunday, and in between are over 150 speakers, mostly heads of state. The SDG Summit is a very big deal for the United Nations and quite possibly for all of humanity. It is the culmination of over two years of negotiations over what should replace the Millennium Development Goals, which expire at the end of this year. The SDGs, or Global Goals as the advocacy community has taken to calling them, are an aspirational set of 17 goals and 169 targets that every country on the planet is pledging to work toward from now until 2030. The top goal is nothing less than the total eradication of extreme poverty, as defined by people who live on less than $1.25 a day, and each of the goals have embedded in them principles of environmental sustainability. It's a massively ambitious agenda, and if it's achieved, life for most of the 8 billion people on Earth in 2030 will be vastly improved. On the line with me to discuss these goals, their likelihood of success, and importantly, how we can measure progress against them is John MacArthur. He's a fellow at Brookings and with the United Nations Foundation and has been studying the SDGs since their inception. This is a great conversation and nicely sets up not just the coming few days at the UN, but also the coming few years of the new international development agenda in pursuit of these global goals. And now here is John MacArthur. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. As I think about the SDGs, I think there are two frames that come to mind. One is actually in the preamble of the summit outcome document, and it's this very simple notion of people, planet, and prosperity, the three big Ps. And there's also a little bit around, of course, peace and partnership, but I think those are all about people, planet, and prosperity. And so these goals are about how to promote uh, those basic objectives everywhere. The other frame that keeps coming to mind is what I would call the second half as an organizing concept. So what does that mean? Well, first, it's the second half of the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, the second half of uh, eliminating extreme poverty, because the MDGs were really the first half. But it's also the second half of the issues. It's uh, the environmental issues, which the MDGs weren't so hot at. It's the social inclusion issues. It's the, uh, you know, inequality and tackling the broader range of economic growth, jobs, cities, and so forth. It's really rounding out the agenda to include all these other key Uh, priorities. 
It's third, it's the second half of the world. It's not just the developing countries, it's the developed countries too. And even the distinction between developing and developed countries is so porous at this stage that it doesn't totally make sense. And then finally, I would say it's the second half of society. So a lot of people, rightly or wrongly, have thought that uh, the MDGs were about, you know, really government and NGOs, non-governmental organizations. There's no question that the SDGs, these new global goals, are about uh, the private sector, science and technology, uh, as much as government and civil society, because all these big, complicated issues aren't going to get solved unless the private uh, investors are there, unless the companies are finding new ways of doing business, uh, unless the scientists are coming up with new technologies to help solve problems that haven't gotten solved yet. And so these really are about kind of second half issues, in my view, across the board, where stuff's underway, but we got to kind of pull it all together, but keep doubling down to go further. Um, so the uh, SDGs have already been decided, uh, you know, the 17 goals and 169-ish targets. Um what but but the the meeting that is happening at New York this week is not to negotiate the goals but to in a way commemorate or celebrate or kick them off how do you see or what political effect do you see this summit at the UN as as having on the the goals and on the international development agenda more broadly i think the first thing to recognize is that just the fact that the presidents and prime ministers are all coming together and popes and popes and uh, people like Malala, of course, uh, and a lot of 193 young people from around the world, one per country, will be coming together uh, in this major political moment. That even provided a strong extra catalyst for better outcomes in the diplomatic negotiations. Mm -hmm. The idea the is that like you had, you're, you know, the president and the pope are going to come. So we negotiators better get down to it, right? Yeah, we can't have a bunch of crappy targets if all these are big bosses and spiritual and moral leaders are showing up. We need to do a good job. And there were many moments where that helped give an extra push. Uh, so it's not, you know, one thing versus the other. They fit into each other. The second thing, though, is, and I've just, in my kind of academic Brookings hat, I've just uh, been finishing a study I'm going to put out this week looking at even who talks and writes about the MDGs over the past 15 years. And one of the things that's so interesting is that these summits actually work for prompting public conversations. So the three months with the most intensive media conversations ever around the Millennium Development Goals were September 2005, September 2008, and September 2010, where you had major summits going on. And these really help, and the data's there to show it, uh, to get the conversation going in broader constituencies. And that's really, I think, one of the big challenges right now is this has been the most inclusive global agenda setting conversation the world's ever had. It's still been a very small sliver of the global conversation. And so if these goals are going to have a hope of working, they need to have a much broader public engagement and corporate engagement and just global engagement. Um, it's funny. I, I sort of something something I definitely noticed. You know, I write about the UN year long, but it's really just this week and and next week that the world at large uh, pays attention to the UN in any sustained and meaningful way. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's reasonable because all their all the big bosses show up politically. But uh, interestingly, because we have Clinton Global Initiative, we have all these things that are even tacked on around the UN General Assembly. And, you know, a lot of company leaders from around the world are coming. A lot of civil society leaders from around the world are coming. People engage this week and congregate to say, you know, what are the big issues and what are we thinking about? Um, so I wanted to get a little bit into the substance of the of the goals and and make this conversation a little more complex. Um, sure. So the the top goal, the the headline goal, is the total eradication of of extreme poverty as defined by people who live on less than one dollar twenty five a day by twenty thirty. That's you know goal one point one or one yep. A, whatever, however they categorize first among it. equals. I call it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's you know, and, and, and it's I think it's it's you know right that it's the top goal. It's you know really everything else builds up to it. Uh, but here's here's the question. I mean, what? Um, first of all, is what would make that goal achievable and plausible? And and are we talking about you know in by twenty thirty there's not one person in the Democratic Republic of Congo who lives on less than one twenty five a day? Like how is that goal actually defined and and may might be realized? Well, I actually just wrote a little Huffington Post piece for this a couple of weeks ago for their series on these issues, and I boiled it down to three basic issues. And with all caveats that nothing can be boiled down to just three things, but especially an issue as complicated as this, but I, I think the following is the best way to think about it. The first is that the largest number, the majority of extremely poor people in the world uh, live in rural areas, and the largest number live in farms in Africa. And the big issue that's needed for those communities, either to boost the incomes on the farms or to help get them off the farms to jobs in cities, is to boost agricultural productivity. And Africa is the one part of the world that hasn't had the so-called green revolution in agricultural productivity, although a couple countries are starting to show green shoots of that. But getting a boost in agricultural productivity gives the double-barreled gains of uh, kickstarting the economy and you know, tackling the, the worst issues of hunger and poverty. The second big thing, though, and I think it's the toughest one that the world doesn't totally know how to deal with is, and we got to be honest about that, is this issue of fragile states like Democratic Republic of Congo that you just mentioned. You know, we know that many of the toughest challenges in the world are in these places where, uh, you know, the institutions of society are just struggling to survive or not surviving. That said, we do know that even, you know, if you look at the greatest gains in, say, child mortality, many of them have been in fragile states in the past 15 years. So it's not a hopeless task. It's just a hard task. And it even gets into things like, why are these places fragile? Many of them are fragile because they're having trouble growing food. And every time the rains fail, linked to climate change or extreme temperatures or whatever it is, and the crops fail, people are more likely to fight. And the, there's top scientific evidence that even climate change is amplifying conflict risks in many of the poorest parts of the world. But then the third thing, and I think this is really the most exciting frontier, which uh, we don't really know what's going to happen, but a lot of cool stuff could happen, is the role of technology in even doing things like direct cash transfers through digital money. And we've seen how even the cell phone revolution of the past 15 years has blown my mind, I think blown many people's minds in terms of how far and how fast it's gone in getting you know, little handheld devices into every remote corner of the world. The notion of being able to give people a very teeny amount of subsistence income has growing evidence that that's a very effective way to actually help them get out of poverty. And there's growing evidence that it's getting extremely, extremely cheap to do. 
So I'm not convinced that, you know, for the very last mile of extreme poverty, uh, having done some calculations as to just how cheap it is, uh, we might actually see that the best way to help them get out of poverty is literally to give them a teeny bit of money. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, like you said, I mean, this is um, the new uh, fad is the wrong word, but this is the new trend, evidence-based trend uh, yeah. in uh, you know the international development agenda and, and global poverty reduction. I did a, a long episode with Chris Blattman, who's one of the pioneers uh, of, course, of, of yeah. this, um, An of old this particular uh, idea, the, the idea of, of non-conditional or unconditional tra- cash transfers. Yeah, um, exactly. So that's interesting. So so you make me hopeful then. I mean, it doesn't sound like a monumental task when you break it down into those constituent parts. Well, I think that we got to realize how far we've come even in the past generation. So, you know, 10 years ago, for example, I remember very vividly, uh, Jeff Sachs put out his book, uh, The End of Poverty. This was seen as crazy talk because even the notion of ending extreme poverty was so bold. And that's why it was on the front page of Time magazine. How, how big an idea is that? Now we're on the uh, trajectory where by 2030, on a business as usual path, we get down to 5% of humanity living in extreme poverty. It's been coming down roughly one percentage point per year for a generation. Over the years, that adds up. And so the big question in my mind is, how do you get that last 5%? And 5% in one sense is a small number. It's a small share of humanity. It means 95% of the world is out of extreme poverty. But 5% of 8 billion people or so is still 400 million people. So it's still a big problem. And that's why we have to still be thinking at scale. But I think we have to just understand that if we accept it's a self-fulfillingly defeatist notion that it'll never happen, that makes it much less likely to happen. If we kind of open our minds to, gosh, how could that happen? I think that's where these goals can really help. They say, gosh, how could this happen? And what would it look like for each of us to do our part to try and make it happen? Um, so some of the goals uh, are sort of easily quantifiable. Uh, some are not. I mean, so for example, the, there's a the goal related to reducing maternal mortality, I think says reduce it to something like 70, 70 per, yeah, yep. 70 per uh, 100,000 uh, live births, right? Yep, By 2030. Exactly. So that's that's just like a hard number. Uh, but then other uh, goals use the word like substantially increase or substantially decrease, which are a little harder to, to measure, at least to me. So how does the international community take those more nebulous goals uh, or and and actualize them and, and and create hard targets against which to um, measure progress. Well, first thing I'd say is the day these targets and goals were all confirmed diplomatically, I actually finally went through the list to count them all and to break them down a little bit. And I'd been waiting for the diplomats to finish their process before I did it because there's so many of them. But the first thing I realized is we have 17 goals. And there's actually 107 outcome targets, along with what I would call 62 process targets. So it's really a 17 and 107 in terms of the outcomes we're going for. And those final 62 are a little bit more how to get there. So of the 107, a bunch of them are very specific, like the maternal mortality, like the child mortality, 25 per thousand uh, live births in every country. And those are the ones where we see you know, that... <laughs> The academic communities, very importantly, uh, the policy communities and others really uh, have their North Star of where they're trying to go. And that just helps on a a very important, implicit basis, everyone row in the same direction towards that North Star. There's a lot of these issues where 
I think the targets are directional and aspirational, either because the data don't yet exist or because uh, the data and the benchmarks aren't yet clear or because there's uh, differing agree uh, opinions as to what the right number should be. So even on something like inequality, different societies have different tests for what the right benchmark should be. And so here I think that you know, there's work to be done to get the data better, to get the statistics uh, cleaner, and to make sure that there's better benchmarks uh, and a clear sense of how far to go. But I think the other thing is that the deepest concept here is that this is where on a universal agenda that all 193 countries have agreed apply equally to themselves, each country needs to figure out its own numerical target to apply to these goals. And that might end up being actually a very powerful organizing concept that everyone agrees to take on the issue, but everyone also agrees that they need their own numbers to pursue that. Um, so from a, a process standpoint, what's next for the goals? Um, how uh, do they start to be implemented? And, and I guess what, what comes now that, you know, the, the, the goals have been, were agreed back in uh, the, over the summer, the heads of state are now, you know, signing their names to the goals. Now, what, what comes next? I think there are a few basic parts and it depends on, uh, one's vantage point. So if you're looking at this from, uh, you know, person on the street uh, who doesn't follow anything, uh, day to day, cause you wouldn't be expected to, uh, I think just understanding these goals and explaining the message to your peers, this notion of tell everyone, how can we get the concept to 7 billion people in seven days is a very powerful, motivating force that many people are wanting to be part of just to say, wow, these goals exist, uh, they're important, and we all need to take them on. Uh, I think then there's the notion of how to set uh, actual priorities within them and how to pick things that either as an individual, an organization, a company, uh, what have you, that people want to take on, uh, which goals matter to you. But within that, I would say, is a really interesting dynamic I've seen is that a lot of the people who have been involved with this conversation uh, at the kind of political and technical level are a little bit unsure of what to make of the fact that there are even 17 goals. And one of the things that I've seen after all these debates, should there be 10, should there be 12, should there be 14, is 17 too many, is that most people, even normal people, uh, you know, from whatever walk of life, uh, they find that 17, if it's explained as here's how something you care about fits into this bigger agenda, where which of these 17 things would you drop? People will say, wow, that makes a lot of sense because the world is just complicated. The world is full of complexity. And as a deputy secretary general, I heard say recently, no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. And this notion of picking your issue and seeing how it fits into the big picture in a world that just feels very complicated right now, that seems to be very resonant. Mm -hmm. And so then, then we get to this notion of, well, each of these Goals has its own community, its own constituent, pardon me, constituency and people who are working at various stages of their own puzzle. And so we see in global health, for example, this is a very, very sophisticated, deeply uh, rooted set of academic conversations, policy conversations, financing conversations. They spent they're 15 years into this global health revolution. And each of the major institutions are deep into revising their strategies to take on this next set of 
mm-hmm. goals. And so there I feel like it's well out of the gate and going quite yeah. well, not perfectly, but quite well. So you'll, there are other issues. So you just have this, uh, j- just just to maybe add some yeah. context. Like, So there's this idea that you'll have like um, civil society groups in a corporation and maybe a nonprofit or a government team up uh, around a specific goal or a specific target. Um, and that's what you yeah. that's what you'll see these kind of public private partnerships coalesce. Um, and, and that might be the political effect of having the SDGs in, in their many targets that you'll have these these groups pick one or two to get behind and just put their efforts behind that those one or two goals. And, and these kind of coalitions will form. Is that is that sort of the, the way you see things transpiring? Well, I see that people already care about their issues. So this gives them a common benchmark for how to organize around the things they care about. So in global health, for example, pharmaceutical industry already exists. And the Global Fund to Fight AIDS TB Malaria got launched and people realized, wow, if we're going to solve this AIDS treatment problem, uh, we need to scale up the Global Fund and we need the drug companies to do their bit. And the civil society uh, wants to make sure that it has a reasonable, fair voice in representing the people concerned. And everyone got around the sense of what are the goals we're trying to achieve, and it gave them a common reference point. We've seen other areas, I would say the environmental community in particular, at the other end of the spectrum, where the goals haven't been as crisp, they haven't been as uh, centrally held politically. Many of them are much harder to quantify, although not all. And so we have people feeling like they're not all rowing in the same direction. They're certainly not rowing in the same direction as their finance minister, even if they're uh, an environment minister. And so how do we get the common benchmarks? And we see many things in between. I would say education. We saw that the education community spent many years, you know, a little bit hamstrung by the Millennium Development Goal around primary education, but recognizing, wow, we need to be focused on secondary education in order to have any chance of getting the real job done, but also we need to be focusing on learning and benchmarking learning outcomes, not just who goes to school. Mm-hmm. The iterative problem solving that's taken place because of a common set of goals has helped to really elevate the ambition in a way that I think the institutions of the world aren't yet matched to, but want to be matched to. So there is an example of where we need, I would argue, the Global Partnership for Education, the bilateral uh, donor countries, the developing countries themselves, the education uh, companies, also the tech community that might be part of this, the, the gaming industry that could be part of this. If each of them are figuring out ways to create incentives for the next wave of breakthroughs, because they all share the common goal, that's where the magic comes in. Uh, well, I knew you'd be the right person to speak to about this, uh, John. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Mark, and thanks for everything you're doing. All right, thank you so much to John. Exciting times at the UN as always. And if you want a breakdown of some of the other big issues that are going to be on the agenda at the UN during this coming UNGA session, check out my conversation last week with Richard Gowan. We have a good conversation about the other big political issues, from Putin to the Pope to President Obama and peacekeeping. Uh, on a side note, uh, this is going to be the first UN General Assembly, the first UNGA that I am missing in 10 years, but for good reason. We have a, a new baby boy coming any day now. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.